So, but today, uh, we're in Romans 6, or excuse me, Romans 7, 1 through 6. This message is called, Till Death Do Us Part. And I wanted to start this morning by telling you a story, right? Story time. And I call this a tale of two husbands, which is funny coming from me. Once upon a time, there was a woman. And as many fairy tales start, this is a tragic story. This woman had a, had a terrible accident, and she lost both of her arms and legs. It was awful. And because of that, we call her Carrie. Right? Get it? That's, 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 that's right. <laughs> now, Carrie, she was married. She, she, Carrie gets married to a man, and, and her first husband's name is Moses. Now, Moses, good guy. Good guy, high expectations. Okay? And, and Carrie, he demands that Carrie carry her own weight in the relationship. He asks that she would show him physical affection, that she would help around the house, uh, help with the kids. Okay? Nothing fair, or unfair or unusual for a spouse. Um, the only problem was that, of course, Carrie couldn't carry her own weight because Carrie can't carry anything. Right? And so, so Moses places these expectations on her, but she's unable to, to do anything that he has demanded for her. But alas, one day, more tragedy. Moses dies. And he's on a safari in Egypt, and he drown- has this drowning accident in the Red Sea. It was very karmic, right? And so, so Moses has, has died. And Carrie, Carrie is going to remarry, and she gets a new husband. Now, you guys, this new husband, amazing. His name is Jesus. <laughs> he's got a Latin flair to him. The guy does nothing wrong, almost as if he walks on water, <laughs> Oh, there, it took us, it was a, there was a tape delay, but you guys got there. Sorry, I've still got jet lag from Ohio, so just bear with me here. So now, Jesus also has expectations for Carrie, also has things, expectations, uh, demands of her, but the difference between Moses and Jesus is that everything that Jesus asks of Carrie, he actually does for her. So when he asks Carrie to dance with him, he picks her up and he twirls her around the room and Carrie feels like a ballerina. He asks her, go for a jog with me. But he puts her in a wheelchair and pushes her and Carrie can feel the, way, the wind in her hair. This guy is a keeper. She's never felt so loved, never felt so alive. Now, I didn't totally make up this, own, this illustration. Paul is going to reference these two husbands and a wife in Romans chapter 7. I colored in some of the details. It's what I call the KJV, the King Justin version. All right, this is the uh, this is this is a bad this is a bad start. The first husband, the first husband Moses. If you didn't already put it together, he's the law. Okay, the law. And the second husband, Jesus. And I know this was thickly veiled, but that's Jesus. All right, that's 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 Christ. Now, now you and I, we are the woman. You and I are are Carrie, the spiritual paraplegic. Now, the law, the law is God's standard for perfection. Now, now, if you want a relationship with God, which is the best thing for any of us, then he says, you must be as holy, as perfect as I am. That's the demand he he puts on us. Now, there's nothing wrong with that standard. That's fair. But the problem is, as born sinners, as born spiritual paraplegics, we can do nothing that the law demands of us. And the law can't help us. All the law can do is simply show us the standard. The law says, obey God, and I say, okay, but the moment that I go to try to obey it, I find myself all nubs, right? I have no ability to do anything that the law requires of me, to be holy and perfect like God. So where the law demands and leaves us helpless to fulfill its laws, Jesus also makes demands on us, but the difference, and this is all the difference in the world, 
is that everything he asks of us, he does for us. And I've shared this poem with us many times, but I just keep coming back to it. John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, he said it this way, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the difference between the law and the gospel. And so who among us, looking at these two options, wouldn't want the second husband, right? Give me Jesus. That's the better husband. But here's the rub. Carrie can't marry. She cannot remarry a new husband as long as she is married to the first husband, legally. She's bound to him because that would be adultery. What's the only way that she can legally, rightfully be married to this new husband? Romans 7 tells us. It teaches us about freedom through death. So look at chapter, verse 1, chapter 7. Paul says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, people who are familiar with the Mosaic law, he says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. He says if you're not living any longer, you're not under that law. So think about it this way. If somebody, if you had a drunk driver who got into a car crash and died, you're not going to find the police officer standing over the corpse writing a ticket, Right? I'm going to read him his Miranda rights. You're going to prison because you were drunk driving. He's dead. He's released from the law. The law is not binding on a dead person any longer. And and, and what he's going to show us here is how it applies to marriage, the story we told at the beginning. And he says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her first husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So so you you follow him, what what he's saying here. And I love this. Paul, who, like me, is a single guy, he compares a spouse to the oppressive law. Right? It's just interesting. Just a side note there. But he... Paul is actually using one of the laws of Moses to talk about the law of Moses. It's like Mosaic inception, right? And what he says is he's going to talk about this this law in particular. He says the law of Moses states that as long as your husband or or your, your wife is alive, you can't marry someone else. That's adultery. But if your spouse dies... You are free, just as if you were originally a virgin, a virgin all over again, to remarry. And it would not be considered adultery. That's his point. Now, when you said your vows, you said, till death do us... <laughs> Got some scary marriages out there. Till death do us... Thank you. All right. Till death do us part. I, I know you're not always used to crowd participation, so I, I sprung that on you. That's on me. Now, when you said till death do us part, what's that mean? I'm faithful to you. I will pledge to, to love you, to cherish, to have and to hold you until death do us part. So when one of us dies or both of us dies, we're no longer married. There will not be marriage in heaven. And, and so what he, what he wants to say here is that she is free if the first husband dies, to now marry the second husband. Jesus, here I come. <laughs> Bienvenidos. Here's our problem, though. The law, God's standard of perfection, is going to continue for all of eternity. The law will never end. That standard will never end. Jesus said this in John 16. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
So the law will never change. Psalm 119, the, the whole chapter that talks about the law, Drew, refer, Drew referenced that last week. All your righteous laws are what? They're eternal. These laws, this standard, of, listen, for as long as God is holy and just, he, by nature, must require holiness and right living from us if we're to have a relationship with him. And that standard will never, never cease. So if the law will never die, if the law will never go away, then how in the world can I be reunited with God? How can I, how can I marry my second husband if my first husband refuses to die. <laughs> now, <laughs> some of you need to repent right now. <laughs> You're terrible. This is an analogy. Man. One of the other things this family pastor is going to offer is marriage counseling. <laughs> and it sounds like that's going to be some job security for that brother. Here's where we have to note the subtle but all-important difference between what he says in verses 2 and 3 and and in verse 4. See, in verses 2 and 3, it's the husband that dies. But look at what he says in verse 4. Likewise, showing here was an analogy, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Now notice what he says. It's not the law. It's not the husband that dies. He says, you died. I died. There's only one way out. If we want to dissolve the marriage between us and the law, and the law ain't going anywhere, then it's got to be us that dies. The law does not pass away. I pass away. And as I die, I am freed from the oppression, the standard of the law. So for for an illustration, let's say I lived in Alabama and I had murdered somebody, right? A series of hypothetical situations that I hope never come up. Alabama state law condemns me to death by the electric chair. Alabama is one of the states that still has the death penalty. And so if I was electrocuted, right, what the Alabama state law can do nothing to save me. All it can do is condemn me. It tells me what I did wrong and then it, it condemns me for what I did done wrong. But let's say that I'm electrocuted and I die. Then... Somehow, miraculously, I come back to, law, to life. I walk back into the room where everybody just killed me, right? <laughs> I've already paid the price. I've already served the sentence, right? There can be no longer any condemnation from Alabama state law. I've, I've died, right? I'm out from under the condemnation because I paid the price. As a born sinner, God's law cannot save me. All it can do is condemn me. So you take just the first 10 commandments. There's 613 of them in in the law of Moses, but just take the first 10. And what the law is, therefore, is to tell me, you have not worshipped God perfectly. I've worshipped many other things in my heart than God himself. You have not obeyed and honored your parents perfectly. You always throw them under the bus in your sermon illustrations, week after week after week, right? Uh, It says, it tells me that you, you you have murdered because I have hate in my heart, right? You've committed adultery because you got lust in your heart. Right? You've taken things that aren't yours. You have not always told the truth. You've desired things that do not belong to you. The law points out that I am a sinner and that I'm rightly condemned. All the law can do is tell me what I've done wrong and that the penalty of sin, capital punishment, here comes some group participation again, the wages of sin is? Much better class. Now, we have, as we have to understand God's perfect demands, the law, they remain 
in the words of the Sandlot, forever. They're not going anywhere. As long as I live as a sinner, I must meet those demands. But if I die, if I die, the law loses its claim on me. The law cannot follow me beyond the grave. So we find the solution for freedom from the demands of the law is the exact same solution for the freedom that we found from our sin nature. If you remember, we talked about in Romans chapter 6. We use the illustration of worse me, and Captain Hook is our sin nature, our oppressor. And what he said in Romans 6 was, for one who has died has been set free from sin. What we said was, Captain Hook, he was our old master. And as long as, as he, I was alive to him, I had to do what he told me to do. He could push me around. Every, every sin order I had to follow and obey when I was dead to God and alive to sin. But we said when we died, sin, although it was still alive, Captain Hook was still there, it was taken to the mast and tied up. And while sin could call to me, tempt me, lie to me, it calls in vain because I am free from the tyranny, from the power of sin. I've died to sin. I died. Sin nature's still there, but I died. I've been separated from its power. And as with sin, so with the law. Listen, as long as Carrie lives, she's bound to her first husband, Moses. But when she dies, the marriage is dissolved and she is free from his demands. And when I die to the law, are the demands still there? They absolutely are. We said the law will never go away. But its power to condemn me to death is gone because I've already died, right? That's where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death has lost its sting. Sin has lost its power over my life. So the vital question arises, how do I die? I mean, I'm still here, right? Physically, I'm still alive. I'm still walking around. So how do I die? Well, glad you asked because Paul's going to answer this question in verse 4. He says, my brothers and sisters, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. See what he says. You've died to the law through the physical body of Christ. Listen, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ walked this earth, and he was crucified, died on the hill of Calvary. And what this verse is saying and what Romans 6 told us is that in God's sight, when we place our faith in Jesus, that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. That I died with Christ 2,000 years ago on that cross. See, Romans 6 tells us that. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, remember the word baptized just means placed into. So if you've been placed into Christ Jesus, you've been placed into his death. We share with him in his death. Verse 5, united with him in a death like his. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ. So the beautiful truth is, the law's demands on us, our sin has been satisfied because death was paid. When Jesus died, not just for us, but we died with him. I don't have to die to sin. I don't have to pay that penalty because I've already paid for it with and in Jesus. The law can't save me, but it can no longer condemn me because Christ has paid the price, which is amazing. But if this was a Jesus infomercial, I would say, but wait, there's more. Because this is what he says. He goes on. Jesus, Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb, did he? 
He, three days later, rose from the grave. Forty days, he walks around spooking people, walking through walls, having fish tacos on the beach. Then he sends his disciples out and says, go and make more disciples. And then what does he do? He returns to his father, where right now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what it says. Romans 6, it continues, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He's now reconnected to the Father. And the beautiful thing in verse 11 is it says what's true of Christ is true of us because we're united with him. Verse 11, so you also, believer, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, separated from its power, and alive to God in Christ Jesus Colossians says what's most true about you is not that you're sitting in a gym in Peninsula, at Peninsula Grace. It's that you're seated with Christ right next to God today. You're looking down, your feet dangling next to Jesus. That's who you are, like the song we sang right before the sermon. See, God's purpose in uniting us with Jesus wasn't just negative, so there'd be no more sin, so there'd be no more condemnation. It's gloriously positive. Paul tells us the grand purpose of this union as he goes on. Here, here's why you died with Jesus through, through his body. So that you may belong to another. To him. Who? To him. Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. So, so just like the good news for Carrie, our, our poor paraplegic, isn't just that she's no longer married to, to Moses, that oppressive first husband that did nothing to help with the demands he put on her. But it's that now she's married to Jesus, who will love her and carry, carry through every single thing that he asks for her. A good, beautiful, perfect husband. See, we're not just released from the demands of our ex-husband, the law, that demands things of us that we could never keep and doesn't help us. We're united. We're united with our new husband, Jesus. And this new lover, this new husband, he gives us every single thing that he asks of us. And Paul tells us the point of this beautiful new marriage, this new husband we have in Jesus, as he finishes the verse out. Why? Why have we been united to this new man? In order that we may bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit for God. See, with Jesus picking up Carrie, she could dance. With Jesus pushing Carrie, she could run. With Christ in us, we can love. With him carrying us, we can be patient and gentle and show kindness and find self-control in our lives. We can live the kind of life that we were originally called to live when he made us in his image to glorify the image that we bear, Jesus himself, God himself. Now, with Christ in us, we can bear the kind of fruit, it says, for God. The kind of fruit that shows the entire world how glorious and honorable and beautiful and wonderful our God is. That's the purpose of our lives, and we've refound that purpose in our new husband, Jesus. So that's the doctrinal side. Now we want to get a little practical. Which means in everyday life, what does it look like to be delivered from the law and alive to God in Jesus. What I want to say is it means that we stop trying to please God. Now you say, wait a second, Justin, that sounds like heresy. Let me explain. We stop trying to please God. My parents' house, my uh, two-year-old niece, June, 
She wanted to go inside. We were playing in the backyard, and she wanted to access the house through the big glass sliding door. She walks over to that giant glass door, and she looks at it. And this is a, this is a, this is a dramatic, uh, this is a re-dramatization, okay? So actually, this isn't the original. It's like cops when they do the dramatic, re, you know, the, the, no Junes were hurt in the making of this film. Don't worry. But she walks over, and she knows she's tried this many times. She's not old enough. She's not strong enough to open that glass door. But do you think that that stops this strong-willed, ever-determined two-year-old? She rolls up her little Minnie Mouse sleeves, right? She gets to pushing. She gets to pulling, right? I come over to offer my help, right? I'm just trying to be a good uncle. Does she want my help? Of course not. Slaps it away. I do it. I do it. Okay, okay. But the harder she tries, the more trouble she finds herself in, right? The bigger mess she gets into. She starts smearing the window up. Right? She trips and falls. She's scraping up her little Minnie Mouse pants. It's just, it's just chaos. She is a hot mess. She finally looks up at me with a pathetic little lower lip. She says, Unk! That's what she calls me. Unk! You do it! So I walk over there. Pick her up. Right? I wrap my enormous Herculean hands around hers, and we open the door, opening up that slide glass door into a whole new world of playing Candyland together. (laughs) The sooner June gave up trying, the better. As long as she's trying, there's no room for Unk to help. The sooner we stop trying to please God, living right, listen to me, in our own strength, by trying to keep the law in order to please him, the sooner that Jesus can pick us up, pathetic little paraplegics who can do nothing on our own, and he can open the door for us. Let's just take, for example, the command, do not commit adultery. Now we know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, even look with somebody with lust in your heart, it's the same thing in God's eyes as adultery. The thought, the desire, right? It's just as condemning via the law. And, and, And so like June, our tendency is to try to obey this law by ourselves, to knock Jesus' hand away and say, I do it. But the harder we try, just like June, the more we fall down. The more we try not to lust, the more I try to stay away from pornography, to not go to that place, to not watch that movie or that TV show, the the harder I, I try, the more easily I scrape my spiritual knees and I fall down. So what do I do? Try harder. Now I try to impose some rules in my life. I can't go to that place, can't talk to that person, can't be on my laptop by myself, need to put on the password, put on covenant eyes on my phone, get the, go to church more, read more, pray more. And I try to impose stricter and stricter rules on myself, but what do I find? I find my heart lusting more than ever. The solution to sin is not to impose stricter rules in your life. It's not going to work. 
It's like the evil lady on YouTube sings. Oops. There we go. Look at her. Pure evil. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Now, is there anything wrong with reading your Bible and praying every day? No, of course not. No, of course not. It gives us access to relationship with Jesus. But the point is that putting externals in our lives, that's not what's going to change our hearts. Outward actions do not change inward heart attitudes. There's a deeper problem than that. What we try to do is we try to swap out the law of Moses with our own laws. And just like the Pharisees, we try to add more rules to our life to make us better people. That's not going to get us anywhere, but with more scraped knees. I love the quote from Watchman Nee. He said, a brother who was trying to struggle into victory remarked to me one day, I do not know why I am so weak. Here was Watchman's response. He said, the trouble with you, I said, is that you are weak enough not to do the will of God, but you're not weak enough to keep out of things all together. You are still not weak enough. The problem isn't that you're, too, you're not weak enough. It's, that you're, it's not that you're too weak. It's that you're not weak enough. He goes on to say, when you are persuaded that you can do nothing whatever, then God will do everything. We all need to come to the point where we say, Lord, I'm unable to do anything for thee, but I trust thee to do everything in me. Until we get to the point where we stop trying and we say, Unk! We say, Jesus, you do it. It's like that old adage about a drowning victim. As long as you're trying to save yourself, the lifeguard cannot come over to assist you. It's only when you get to the point where you let go, when you quit trying, that something, someone outside of yourself can rescue you. So if I'm failing at do not commit adultery... The solution isn't trying to swim harder and faster. It's to quit swimming altogether. Now, does that mean we just continue to lust and we don't care? No, of course not. What does it mean? What does it mean? That's what he says in verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve. See, we're still called to serve. We're still called to serve God. Remember we said we're, not, we're always serving someone but that we serve God in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Because you're not doing it by the law any longer. You're doing it by the spirit that lives in you. And we'll talk about that more in Romans chapter 8 when he addresses walking in the power of the spirit. But what we need to see for here, for now, is that when we come to him by the written code, the law, the law says, I do something for God. I please you. I gain favor in your standing by what I do for you. But grace, the gospel, is the exact opposite. It says grace means that God did something for me. The conference I was just at, there was a whole wealth of wisdom. This one man by the name of Tom Julian, he's been walking with Jesus in ministry for years. He has more wisdom in his, half of his pinky finger than I do in my entire person. And he was quoted actually by somebody else. He was at the conference, but somebody else was quoting him when they were speaking. And they said this, and I haven't been able to get out of my brain. It said, Tom, Tom said this, ministry is not what we do for God, but what God does through us. Ministry is not what we do for God, but it's what God does through us. So what did God do for us through Jesus in regard to the problem? Again, specifically looking at lust. For you, you can fill in whatever sin it is in, in the gaps. Three things that we need to believe and abide in 
if we're going to find victory. Number one is to believe Jesus paid the penalty for my lust. 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my, for your lust, for your fill in the blank. And now we are released from the guilt and from the condemnation of that sin. Because the, the, the price was paid and we died with Jesus. That we don't have to pay for it any longer. Second thing we have to believe, that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, do not commit adultery. Not only was the penalty paid for for committing adultery, Jesus lived the perfect life that I could never live. When he came to this earth as a human being and he walked around for 33-ish years, never once did he lust in his heart toward another. Never once did he objectify one of those women that were serving next to him. He did nothing but dignify and perfectly and sacrificially love and eventually die for those around him in the manner that I never could in my own sin heart. The third thing that we have to believe is that God placed Jesus' perfect spirit in me, that never-lusting, always-loving, perfect, holy spirit now abides in this temple. My job, as we said in Romans 6, is to know these truths, to reckon them true, to believe them, and then to simply surrender, to offer myself to God, not doing something for him, but to say, God, you start doing things through me in the life of Jesus that's put in me. See, your first husband, the law, it told you not to lust, told you not to steal, told you not to be proud, told you not to, whatever it is that you're dealing with right now. But then it offered you no power to your paraplegic sinful nature. But your new husband, Jesus, he says not to lust. Then he picks us up. He opens the door for us. And our job, like June, is to simply say, Jesus, you do it. You do it. And then Jesus, he opens the door to a whole new way of life, of loving other people, of selfless living, of bearing fruit that pleases our heavenly Father. Now to be wise, to be clear, to be clear here, am I saying, because I don't want you to hear me wrong from what I said earlier, does that mean that we don't put a password on the laptop? Does that mean that we don't put on covenant eyes? Does that mean we don't avoid certain places and people? Of course, those are good steps to take, but I'm not trusting those external actions to produce righteousness in me. They can't. What I need is a new heart and a new spirit, and in Jesus, that's exactly what I got. And he will now change me from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's a good husband. When you got married, you said, till death do us part. At least some of you did. We died to our first husband when we were crucified with Christ. The law's demands have nothing on you any longer. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we've been united to this new husband. And Romans 8 says that death, nor life, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor things past, nor things to come, there's nothing that can ever separate us from this new husband, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you for giving us this new life in Jesus. Thank you that that Jesus paid the price that I never could and that you included me in that death and you included me in that new life. Father, I confess, I don't know how many times a day I try to open the sliding glass door on my own, that I shove your hand away and say, I do it. 
Father, I, I know there are brothers and sisters here that can, can relate to that. So we just want to collectively repent that we so often try to do things in our own strength instead of surrendering to the spirit of Jesus in us. Give us grace to trust you more to open our eyes to the beautiful new union that we have in Jesus. And it says we abide in him. Stop trying to do things for God, but allow Jesus to do beautiful things in and through us that we will find the kind of fruitful life that honors you and that blesses others. May we be a people that take our hands off the sliding glass door and look up to our new husband and say, pick me up, you do it. May we be a people of faith. And as we watch the Spirit of Jesus operating in each one of our hearts, we would change this community in ways that we never could on our own. That the always loving Spirit of Jesus would operate through us and that we'd see more and more come to know and believe that there is a beautiful new marriage waiting for them. It's in your always loving, perfect, righteous, victorious name that we gather, that we worship, and that we pray. Amen.